Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. In the episode today, I have a wonderful conversation with Dr. Tommy Wood. We discuss ancestral health, the benefits of stress, physiologic headroom, aka resilience, uh, sleep and circadian rhythms, nutrition and social connections, and just so much more. Dr. Wood shares his thoughts on DNA and genetics, and you may get surprised at just where he thinks we're at with all of that. There's so much in this one. I really appreciate all his time. Now, some housekeeping before we go on. Please subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts. That really helped me out. Um, also, I love all your feedback on social media platforms, and I will get back to you on those. So you can go to Instagram, I'm The Greg Bennett Show, uh, Twitter, just Greg Bennett Show. And then you can also find me on LinkedIn and Facebook, just as Greg Bennett. And I'll get back to you on any of those platforms and, and have a chat with you about the show. So please keep that feedback coming. Also, you can find all the show notes, the timestamps, any of the coupon codes to the sponsors uh, and the show links uh, to at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. I hope you get as much out of this one as I did. It was just simply brilliant. Now, remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. I'm so grateful for the continued support of the show from these incredible sponsors. You really do need to have these products in your life. Personally, I use each of them daily. Athletic Greens, Nutritional Beverage, Hyper Ice Recovery Tools, and the Glutathione Supplement, Continual G. What I love about Athletic Greens is its simplicity. It's delivered straight to your door and it takes seconds to mix with water. It tastes great and goes down easy. And I know I'm getting the most comprehensive nutritional beverage on the planet in one quick drink. If you're looking for one product that has as much high quality nutrients in it as possible, then you want to consider Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is more than just a multivitamin and multimineral. It takes it to the next level, adding a daily dose of superfoods, probiotics, greens blend, and more to support the gut health, energy, immunity, and stress. And right now, Athletic Greens is giving you, my audience, a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula. You'll receive one year supply of vitamin D and five travel packs for free with your first purchase for additional immune support. Many of the population are vitamin D deficient, including myself. I focus heavily in getting in the sun throughout the day, but when I can't, I religiously supplement with vitamin D. Adding vitamin D to your daily routine is just a great way to support vitamin D production. So if you're looking to get more out of your multivitamin and invest in your immunity, energy, and gut health, then you'll struggle to find anything more comprehensive than athletic greens. Take ownership of your health today and receive comprehensive nutritional insurance, a free year supply of vitamin D, and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Now, you'll hear me mention Normatech and Hypervolt from Hyperice in several of the conversations with my guests in this show. Many of my guests and I are using these recovery tools religiously. You really must have them in your house. Sit in a pair of Normatech boots at the end of a long day. Use the Hypervolt percussion massage device to warm up muscles and loosen hot spots before working out or anytime you have a niggling injury. They're just so easy and they're so quick and they work. Their vibrating foam rollers, thermal technology and Normatech compression systems just help you warm up faster, recover quicker and simply move better. Seriously, these products are the perfect Christmas gift for any family member or good friend. Get $50 off all percussion devices now, no code needed, and get an additional 10% off with code GREG10. 
10 at hyperice.com. That's hyperice.com, H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E.com and use code GREG10 for 10% off. I have a web address for all of my listeners who already know that one, the human body makes the most powerful antioxidants on earth. Two, the master antioxidant your body cells make is called glutathione and the human body needs glutathione to live. Three, the reason I'm addressing a select group of listeners with this web address is that once you see what these scientists in my hometown, Sydney, have accomplished, it'll blow your mind. Go check out continualg.com, continualg.com. That's C-O-N-T-I-N-U-A-L-G.com. Check it out and let them know that I told you about it. All right, today's episode, I want to welcome back my go-to encyclopedia of knowledge, Dr. Tommy Wood. Now, if you missed episode 29 back in July when Dr. Wood was last on, I'd encourage you to go check it out. There were just so many great takeaways in that one. Now, a quick recap to Dr. Wood's background. He received his bachelor's degree in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge, medical degree from the University of Oxford, and a PhD in physiology and neuroscience from the University of Oslo. And he's worked with the world's greatest athletes from Formula One motorsport to the world's best endurance athletes. And he's currently on research faculty at the University of Washington in the Department of Pediatrics with his research focusing on ways to increase resilience and the treatment of uh, the developing brain. And his depth of knowledge and just ability to Communicate detailed scientific literature to the rest of us is just truly outstanding and, and just very much appreciated. So welcome and thank you for joining me once again on The Greg Bennett Show. Dr. Tommy Wood, how are you, mate? Uh, I'm great, thanks. Um, such a, a kind intro. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely humbled uh, to, to be here and, and be able to, to chat with you. And, you know, like we mentioned last time, we sort of, we have a uh, both a, a friendship and a and a co-working relationship going back a few years now and it's it's always so much fun to talk with you and and work with you so i'm really happy to be back oh, i appreciate that mate and and your your episode in july was so well received and just a flashback on that you know we we discussed uh, your paper on metabolic health and lifestyle medicine and mm. and how it should be the cornerstone of future pandemic preparedness and you know we, we touched on many other things throughout that episode but i felt like with you we're, we we almost we scratched the surface of all of your knowledge and there was one thing that you said back in that episode and, and that's why I really wanted you back on the show. You said, if I ever can't answer a question or I don't understand a question in biology, I try to come from an ancestral type of viewpoint and what environment did we evolve from? And, and what I was hoping to do a little bit today is delve a little bit more into what ancestral health is and get a better idea of how we can use the past to optimize our future mm. and, and our overall metabolic health within all of that. Um, now, you're a member of the Physicians for Ancestral Health. So firstly, what is that and what are you and the rest of the team doing in that field? So Physicians for Ancestral Health is a society that I was invited to join, uh, I guess it was five or six years ago now. It was right at the start of my PhD um, and I gave a talk in the UK um, and there was a physician there, Polina Sayas, who works in, she works in the US and she invited me to, to come across to, uh, a small gathering that they, that they have, we have every year, um, to, to sort of, to give a talk and be a member of the society. And it's, it's a, it's a fairly small group, you know, depending on the year, we're anywhere from 20 to 50 physicians. Uh, mm. and we, we basically, 
are there to support one another in our pursuits um, to promote the idea of ancestral health. And I guess, again, like 10 years ago, so, you know, paleo was was kind of really sexy and hot. And it, and it isn't really un- anymore. And, and I certainly understand why it isn't. Uh, because there's there's a lot of sort of underlying components that that people have various uh, complaints about, and I, and I certainly agree with many of them. Um, but the the core underlying principle is that you know we evolved through a certain set of you know environments, and those basically inform our physiology. There's something about uh, the environment and the inputs and the day to day experiences that the body almost expects. And mm-hmm. if it doesn't get that, then we see maladaptive responses that are often associated with disease. And if it, it does get them, then we see sort of beneficial uh, adaptations that are associated with Im- improved resilience is one way um, that, that we could talk about it. And those things essentially are tied to nutrition, sleep and circadian rhythms, movement um and sleep and social connection and maybe you know some other kind of psychological and and social stresses particularly from a uh, a maladaptive standpoint you know because those things are much more common in the modern environment than than they were before and if you pull those levers or you know you look at the the commonest causes of death or chronic disease in uh modern westernized society if you want to use that term um you know either the the absence or, you know, uh, sort of misdirected application uh, of those you know, stresses or exposures, um, uh, you know, are then the, the biggest risk factors uh, for, for these diseases. So it's basically just the idea that there's uh, an environment that we it, ad- adapted to live in, and we've done pretty much everything that we can to try and remove those um, necessary exposures from our lives, because that sort of, I guess that's one of the downsides of having the the cognitive capacities that humans do. And as a result, you know, we now have to work really hard to try and reestablish these things in our environment to try and get some of the health benefits and maybe treat chronic disease. Um, and, you know, we... Uh, we mention ancestral health, um, but these principles are really popping up across a wide gamut of, of different societies and um, medical approaches. Um, they certainly appear as the core principles of lifestyle medicine, integrative medicine, functional medicine. Um, and I'm also a, a director and, co- and co-founder of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. And they they each have their own different approach. Um, and they, they all like to complain about the other ones because of certain things that they do. <laughs> but in reality, like one of my beliefs is that the, the core parts of all of those things and the reasons why they're successful are essentially the same. And the rest is just kind of minutia that often aren't really worth uh, complaining about. Mm. So ancestral mm. health is one way to call it. Uh, but, you know, certainly any of those uh, are absolutely these are the, the, the core foundations of those things as well. It's hard to not look at it when we see all the media that we've had this year, you know, in 2020. Um, and it's it's been a lot of, you know, obviously it's been COVID, 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 COVID and, yeah. and, and dealing with this virus. And some of it understandable, but some of it you can tell it's just, you know, for ratings or whatever else. And it's just this, this fear mongering. But it's very little have we heard about talking about lifestyle medicine as you mm. put it or metabolic health and and yet it's if we if we look at it um if we kind of think of metabolic health as a 
the basis of all that we need to stay healthy. And then once that goes astray, the alternative medicine, we could call it the Western medicine. You know what I mean? It's like once you need surgery, once you need pharmaceuticals, once you need vaccines and all of that, then it's maybe because we haven't taken care of our metabolic health. Do, Do you see that kind of thing? happening this year yeah i do and it, it is slightly surprising to me there are there are a few um essentially firebrands out there who have been waving the uh the, the metabolic health stick and the importance of that um and you know with, with good reason because i think that is a, a core underlying or maybe the mm-hmm. core underlying risk factor i mean for for covid but also for any other chronic disease you'd like to uh, care to mention as well as other respiratory diseases it's the same you know it was the same for SARS it's the same for flu you know these you know having poor metabolic health basically leaves you at increased risk for pretty much anything that's likely to kill you to bar a you know a, a very small you know a bar you know accidents essentially mm. um and so it's surprising to me that this hasn't come up more frequently although you know you do hear that you know people who have pre-existing conditions is maybe what what people have said or pre you know pre-existing yeah. chronic conditions uh, you know and maybe they mention uh, being a w- overweight or obese or you know maybe they mentioned type 2 diabetes uh, but none of it is really tied together in this overall picture of what i would call metabolic health even though those things you know uh, body composition and blood sugar regulation are key components of metabolic syndrome which is obviously sort of the way that we diagnose systemic metabolic disease but that also exists on a spectrum um, mm. with the majority of people already on that spectrum, which is why uh, so many people are, are at increased risk of these things. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm kind of surprised that it hasn't come to the forefront more. But equally, there's you know uh, been a, a number of years, if not decades, of people talking about you know obesity and, and type 2 diabetes and now dementia which is uh, the leading cause uh, of death in the uk and at some point in the us it's basically uh, predicted to bankrupt the healthcare system um oh. and you know and uh, t- uh, metabolic health or metabolic disease is a significant risk factor for for age-related cognitive decline and dementia um and you know we so we've been cognizant of these things for a long time but we also i think we know we know I like to think that we know a lot of the lifestyle factors that feed into this, and they're obviously associated with diet and sleep and stress and, and movement. Um, but there's been almost no public health uh, sort of information process, or you know, some of the both top-down and bottom-up approaches that we might need to help a more disadvantaged populations who have less of the ability to manipulate their environment like you or I would. You know. There just hasn't been any successful way to intervene on these things, so it, it then kind of makes sense why you wouldn't talk about it because you mm. you haven't been able to do anything about it in the first place. Um, and so I think that's where the big disconnect is: is that I think we know that these things are incredibly important, but every sort of attempt to get people to change these things or fix these things ha- has failed, and that's you know probably because of enough you know we're focusing in the wrong place or there's too many vested interests in the things that you know help us become obese and type 2 diabetic um from a you know a lobbying standpoint so there's lots of different things at play um but I, you know it would have been nice to see this sort of coming to the forefront because not only is it important for covid but it's basically it's important for heart disease mm-hmm. dementia multiple cancers you know pretty much anything that you might want to avoid for as long as possible um if you want to stay healthy I mean, you touch on all that, but you know what I did the other day? I 
I was very curious about you know how long we've been how long we live now compared to the past and, and so I was like okay what was the last major event sort of about a hundred years ago and it was the Great Depression and, and so I typed in well what was the average age that people lived to in 1928 so basically you know 110 years ago and the average age that people lived to was 57 mm-hmm. so we're, we're basically already outliving what we did by about 25 years, which is a huge amount. So um, you start to wonder, have people become very comfortable with modern medicine becoming the Band-Aid, the quick fix, that we can do anything we want to ourselves and it doesn't matter? Do you th- there's, there's, it's like we're doing nothing about metabolic health, but I think as a society, I feel like we've, we're, we're leaning on modern medicine now so, so much that it's kind of like, well, we shouldn't have to do anything because we're all living longer and, you know, our life expectancy, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s for Australia and the US and the UK, it's kind of like, well, why should we worry about anything? You know, there's there's not that (laughs) that firework that we all need sometimes to make change. Yeah, I I think, you know, certainly there's there's been an, you know, historically an over-reliance on what I would have called paternalistic medicine, which is, you know, doctor knows best and you just... Let the doctor tell you what to do, um, and I think that era of medicine is is essentially over. Although some of the uh, the old guard in, in medicine and academia are clinging onto it, um, you know, so desperate to do you know sort of appeals to authority and, and all that kind of stuff, which is uh, you know experience is certainly important to an extent, but you know the, there's we need we need to be much more humble in terms of what we really do uh, know uh, individually as as well as collectively, but. The the thing that, that you point out quite nicely is that what the modern medical system was designed to do, it was actually very successful at. So if you think about uh, uh, average age and mortality rates 100 years ago, what people died of was infectious disease. And we are incredibly good at treating infectious disease now. And so the big improvement in you know long-term survival is because of antibiotics and improved intensive care and you know we think forward into the 70s and 80s in the world of neonatal medicine where i spend most of my time working you know now we can have kids born uh, at 28 weeks of gestation you know three months early and and they're ventilators and they can survive and that never used to be the case so there are lots of things that modern medicine has has done and been able and been able to do very successfully with infectious disease being probably the best and antibiotics being one of the, the, the biggest single contributors to that so that you don't die of um, any kind of bacterial infection like you would have done a uh, 100 years ago. And so, however, that process involved um, a quick diagnosis and a single treatment. And then after that, you were well and you could go home and you could continue. Um, but... That, you know, there was no sort of chronic disease component to that, right? You know, if you ad- adequately mm-hmm. treat an infection, you, you should recover fairly well, and then you go on your way. But that system wasn't designed to deal with this chronic burden of disease where there's no re- real end in sight. It's just continuous firefighting and symptom management, um, and, you know, and, and maybe a little bit of treatment that, that can potentially e- extend uh, your life depending on, depending on the condition. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, the, the system that we have just wasn't designed to deal with that. And I think that's where we're seeing a lot of the breakdown, both in terms of the expectations um, of, you know, the people using it and the doctors within it. There's just, it, it was good for what it was designed for and the way it used to work, but it just doesn't, it doesn't work like that anymore. Or at least the disease, 
the diseases that are, are most prevalent, you know, can't be treated in that same way. Yeah, we, we now have a new set of problems, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, we're good. Oh, no, we're not. Damn it. I mean, <laughs> that's the thing. It's one thing to live longer as a society, but it's also that quality of life that I mm. that I think that we're now all thinking about. And um, I, I, I guess moving on on that, um, you mentioned, uh, you know, when we talk about ancestral health or lifestyle medicine and, and things, when we talk about stress, now, your field is, you know, you're, you're doing a lot of work on resilience uh, of the, of that we're stronger perhaps than what we think we are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you and I had a conversation a few weeks back about that. And that's what, you know, really today is a lot about. I want to really get your thoughts on resilience. And, and, the, and but I, I guess let's start with stress. Um, mm-hmm. And the benefits of stress, as, as you, you kind of you kind of put it, which I, I guess we're looking at there's there's chronic stress and then there's kind of that moderate stress. I don't know. You tell me your your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, sh- sure. So 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 I think as as a species, uh, we are the most adaptable and potentially resilient of of any species on the planet you know, given the environment, because we are, you know, we're so adaptable, and we respond to stresses, um, in, you know, with beneficial adaptations that, that help us survive. Mm. And the, the, the I think the, the real key difference is probably was well, it's maybe the type of stress, but then it's also the chronicity of it, how long you're exposed to it. So if I think about stresses that we could call beneficial or hormetic stresses people may have heard of the process of hormesis which is essentially a fancy word for what doesn't kill you makes you stronger um the the hormetic stresses are things like uh exercise maybe cold or heat exposure fasting you know these these things that just happen naturally as you know sometimes there's no food available and when there's no food available then you have to go and walk or climb or run or jump to find it um you know and depending on where you live sometimes it's hot and sometimes it's cold um and and these things basically result in cellular stress if if you want a better word which then results in a more efficient um you know and more robust system that can then deal with deal with these uh, stresses in the future and you know that's the exact uh part of any kind of uh, progressive overload training program which usually includes some periods of deload to allow for adaptation um, and that basically applies to, to any uh, in multiple stresses that, that we might be exposed to. And actually, you know, you can, it even applies to certain environmental toxins and things like that. You expose somebody to a small dose, they can adapt to it, um, and then they get stronger over time. And there's obviously lots of sort of folklore stories of, uh, you know, Roman and Greek rulers who would dose themselves with small amounts of poison so that if somebody poisoned their meal, they would be able to uh, adapt to it. And, you know, the, those <laughs> things. And those, so those things, you know, are, are possible as well. So it could even be things that you might think, oh, that's definitely bad for me, but you can adapt over time. And I'm not recommending that everybody, you know, <laughs> injects themselves with small doses of ricin or whatever. But, but you know, but that's how our, that's how our physiology works, right? It adapts to these stresses over time and, and then becomes more, more resilient and robust. Now, if you, you know, compare that to the kind of stress that we find ourselves being exposed to in the modern environment, a lot of it is psychological or social um and so that can be you know work pressure financial pressure family pressure um you know systemic oppression which is something that we're talking about more and more which is incredibly important and you know has been prevalent in multiple countries that i have both lived uh and worked in um you know and these things they 
they essentially wear you down over time. Like there's no period that you have to be able to adapt and come back stronger. And so I would liken it to uh, a training program that includes progressive overload, but never gives you a period to of time to you know recover, mm-hmm. deload. There's no off season, right? It's just continuous. Uh, it's continuous stress such that you end up overtrained, if you know, for for, for want of a better word. Um, and so these these other stresses, a, they're 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 quite novel stresses, right? I mean, a thousand years ago, uh, or ten thousand years ago, there probably wasn't much like continuous you know, work, social pressure. There was no social media. There was there were none of these kinds of cog- sort of cognitive. Um, social stresses that we were exposed to continuously. Um, and th- there probably wasn't nearly as much uh, sleep deprivation as well, be- being another one that, that we're continuously exposed to. So so not only are some of these stresses quite novel to us, they also just happen continuously such that we never get a period to sort of re- recover and bounce back from them. So I think that's the real um, difference between the two, because obviously you can beat down your system with training or cold exposure or too much fasting or whatever. So you can turn those potentially beneficial acute stresses into negative chronic stresses. And so the dose and the timing is important as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting when we talk about stress. And I like how you bring it back to training loads and how we train as athletes. But I think it's also we can look at that whether we're talking about our immune system, mm. like you said, taking the poison or, or whatever else. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me to – to find where is that line because as athletes uh it's kind of i think joel filial put it best in in his he said you know i'm trying to find and i'm going to get the quote wrong but basically i'm looking for the most benefit for the minimal amount of work mm-hmm. right and, and so we're trying to go okay what is the the, the optimum area of, of getting benefit back from stress because if we think about it stress Training is just pure stress. We're trying to make ourselves stronger through hard work and then we recover and a good program has recover. And, and for myself, when, when we were training really hard, I'd end up jumping in the, tr- in the altitude tent you know, during the final push phase and it was the final layer of really incredible stress that I put on my body and forcing my body to try and overcome it so I'd be ready for a, for a key race. Mm. But it's for Laura, it, you know, we had to be really careful because she almost went into a hole many times by adding just that extra layer of stress. And, and I guess that's what each of us have to kind of step back and kind of go, okay, listen to myself. And that's kind of what I try to educate, you know, people when I'm working with them is saying, take taking ownership and responsibility for your own life and managing those stresses and use some grounding tools or recovery tools to bring you back. I mean, it, it, when we talk about grounding, is, is that kind of in a direct correlation to the stress? Is it kind of like we're living in a parasympathetic state and this is what we need to bring ourselves back to in a sympathetic state? You mean sympathetic and bring us back to parasympathetic? Um, p- pardon me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. No, just, just, just in case anybody was... Uh, no, no, yes, please up. correct me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, yes, I think that's that's certainly a, a, um, a big part of it and... The, there's an increasing interest in the autonomic nervous system because it's you know which you know which has two sides the sympathetic and, and the parasympathetic you know sympathetic being sort of the fight or flight 
um, and uh, the parasympathetic being rest and digest. These are sort of uh, things that you learn that I learned in medical school back back in the day, uh, but but still still hold true. And it, it's sort of the main one of the main systems connecting the brain and body, essentially making them one. And you can use one you can use one to manipulate the other in in both directions. So there are like breathing tools that you can do to potentially help uh, balance. You know, so you can consciously help balance the autonomic nervous system within the brain by by doing certain breathing patterns as uh, work of andrew hoopman at stanford people may have heard of um and so there are ways that we can influence themselves and, and this is why this this is why the autonomic nervous system is is something that's that's so popular right now because it's, it seems to be something that we can actually both measure and intervene with and measurements might include things like both resting heart rate or heart rate variability those are probably the ones that that people mm. um have thought about the most um uh, or you know uh, published the most you certainly used extensively in athletes uh, to, to measure sort of total load and predict the physiological load of a certain training session because there, there seems to be some some correlates there so yeah i think that's that's certainly one expression of what's what's happening here and you know that that chronic stress chronic having you know chronically having to be alert and ready and that kind of state of alertness is also driven by the way that we currently live our lives in front of a two by four inch screen that we're continuously focused on um which actually drives you know that that sort of that that um heightened state of, of awareness and that, that you know has its own negative side effects but that seems to be where we're spending most of our time which is potentially potentiating some, some of that stuff as well so yeah the autonomic nervous system is a, is a is a nice way to to sort of look into what might be going on there I know it's like we we never get to. I mean, I've always looked at stress as almost an anxiety to somewhat. If you have a direction, a passion, a goal to fuel, it, it's it's great fuel for for mm. where you want to go. Mm. But I almost feel like we can't turn it off now. It's yeah. like it's like we're fueled and anxious and ready to go. But it's kind of like but I'm not getting my downtime. I'm not yeah. getting that ability. And now we're all having to, you know, a lot of these episodes that I've had, I talk about mindfulness and and, mm. and, and trying to, how do we get ourselves to take a break? Um, and for anybody, any parents out there, I feel like it is now just 24 seven, you're just on, on, on. And it's kind of like, okay, we actually got to work at trying to bring ourselves back to some kind of neutral. Um, and, and on that, I guess, you know, let, let's move on to, resilience because i think your whole thing is that we're far more resilient than what you know maybe the media or whoever portraying us to be that you know uh it, it's one of those things i think this year this past year with, with, with covid it was kind of i i think the fear that came out we all thought okay this is the end of time it was like okay this is the it and then it's almost like gone okay no, we can we can handle this. Now it's not perfect mm. by any means. It hasn't been great, and I, <laughs> and I know there's a lot of people struggling out there, and lots of families that aren't together, and people losing jobs. I'm not saying that by any means, but it does seem that as a human race, we are far stronger. So let's move on to resilience and tell me where have you where have your your studies you know taken you and and on the on the human spirit i guess that we call it <laughs> yeah so so i like to think of resilience um uh, or in, in another way uh is physiologic headroom and so 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 re resilience can uh, be thought of as you know just this cognitive or psychological ability to bounce back and that's certainly one way that people talk about resilience but i like to think of it 
more broadly. Uh, and physiologic headroom is a, a, a phrase that I learned from Art Devaney, who is this awesome uh, old school, rather ancestral health kind of guy. He's now in his 80s. He was He's an economist. He was a, a minor league baseball player. He um, you know, was around at like sort of the dawn of original bodybuilding. And he's a, a super smart a super smart guy, you know, still you know, mm. very active. And he talks about physiologic headroom, which is essentially the difference between what you need to do from day to day versus what is your maximal capacity. So it's the difference between um, what, you know, the, so say, so say me sitting down and, and this is important as we get older and, and, and want to not fall and break a hip and die of pneumonia in hospital. There's the difference between uh, me sitting down onto the toilet, being able to do a bodyweight squat versus what's my maximal back squat? Like, what's the delta there? What's the size of that? And obviously, you get to a point of diminishing returns, but you want to have some buffer between what you are physically capable of and what you are, what you have to do from day to day. Mm. Um, and so that obviously makes sense from a, a physical performance standpoint, right? If your day to day is just walking around, walking up and down stairs, and you can do a a nine-hour Ironman, right? Your your physiologic headroom from a, a physical capacity is is quite significant, um, but it also applies to you know the immune system, inflammation, oxidative stress, um, psychological stresses, um, and what sort of I think we know about humans again is that if they're exposed to these stresses and there's and there's overlap right so if you're if you're exposed to what so like if fasting is the stress that you're exposed to that's probably also gonna um improve your resilience to, to other things so because they they all seem to intersect at a number of pathways around the the function mm -hmm. of the mitochondria so these things overlap but if we have some exposure to these we've adapted and we're stronger then we have a greater ability to handle a greater load uh, when it shows up. And so, so I think we know that about ourselves. Again, it's what makes us very adaptable and resilient, to use that word, as a species. Um, but there are a number of potential problems that are, I think are diminishing that. So one is essentially the fact that we've removed movement and hot and cold and, um, you know, the absence of calories occasionally from our environment like that just you know for for everybody listening to this that that those things never have to be a factor in your life if you, if you don't want them to be um and so we we just don't have that adaptation built into the system because we're not exposed to those things and you know with that comes the increased you know disease risk and you know as you become um uh you know metabolically disordered or disease then you get immunological disorders as well which are then associated with you know worse outcomes say after something like covid but then it's also going to be associated with poorer mental health and poorer mental and cognitive resilience so so all of it is is linked together so that's that's one part of it um and that's kind of happening on, on a population level at the same time i also worry about the language that we use in the world of health optimization and so you've talked about genetics on your podcast. Um, mm. And that's, the, that's one of the areas where I think um, that is the worst offenders with this, which is that you are either normal, which is usually quite rare, or you have some deficiency or malfunction. So the, the language is always of um, 
bad pass or, pass or fail <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah no but it's not even that it's not even like pass or fail it's just normal or fail right so like normal no, or fail. Yeah, there's yeah. no there's no benefit that you get from the the good side or you know you know having having a, a normally functioning or a hundred percent function or whatever the, the the gene is so like we constantly talk about you know things from the, the negative side and there's plenty of data to suggest that if i talk about you know, negative risk factors for you and your physiology, like genetics being the probably the, the one that's easiest to define and therefore has been uh, most widely researched. If I tell you you're at risk of a disease or if I tell you you're at risk of worse athletic performance, you will have worse physiology. You will perform worse, of right? Course. And and of so this is, this is the problem then that we can expand that to continuously trying to optimize or improve things. So say you wear some kind of sleep tracker and like there's this continuous pursuit of perfect sleep which you are never going to reach and you know then then when you're the the majority of people as you're going to sleep you'll think am i gonna have a good night's sleep um i hope i have a good night's sleep because then my sleep tracker will tell me that i slept well but oh oh no what if i don't sleep well then the sleep tracker is going to tell me that i didn't sleep well and now i'm not sleeping because i'm worried about what the sleep tracker is going to tell me about my sleep and- I got to jump in there. I'm the worst for any of those trackers <laughs> because I I struggle with anxiety at the best of times. Mm. So now if I now if I have a test or a measurement, now I certainly don't sleep well. <laughs> yeah, and, and and so and this so there are some people who are very objective and analytical, but I my guess is it's less than one percent of the population who can just look at this data objectively and say, oh. This is what happened yesterday. This is why I didn't sleep as well. My wife, my wife is that one percent. Yeah, but I'm not. No, and and so for the majority <laughs> of people, and so but the, but the, but this is the language to be using. It could be the same for blood sugar. It could be the same for sleep. Yeah, it's definitely the case for genetics. Like you have fifty percent function in this gene, or you know this gene isn't working properly, or you know, and mm. and that immediately makes you think like you are deficient. Um, mm. and 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 you and that is reflected in your physiological responses. That's been shown. So. Mm. The, the problem is that we, we approach these things, we approach the improvement in health from a negative standpoint. And so there's this continuous negative language that does have a negative effect on our physiology. And so we're continuously telling people, you are not as good as you could be. Um, and that doesn't make people think, oh, well, I hope I can be better. It makes them feel bad about themselves, which has a negative effect on them. So there's this continuous language, even in the world of um, health improvement, health optimization, uh, there's this negative language that's telling people that they are not as good or as strong or as, or as resilient uh, as, as they could be or they can be. And that's just completely false. So I think there's a danger um, of kind of creating these cognitive processes in the pursuit of optimization. So at both ends of the spectrum, one, just like on the population level, the, the worsening physiological metabolic health in general has kind of sort of put us put put most people in this bad place in terms of their own resilience and then at the other side we're kind of by over analyzing things and people who want to care about their health there's also the potential to have a a negative effect on our resilience there because we're telling ourselves that we're not as strong or not as resilient as we can be just because of the language that exists um so so let me quickly just sorry to jump in there but how would you approach the language? Uh, and is it kind of saying, look, you're awesome. How do we stay there? Mindset? Is it <laughs> yeah. like you are the most amazing human on, you know, and, but how, how do you keep there for, and how do you not fall back? So it's kind of coming from the other side or how do you, or do you just approach it from a neutral, just try and get people to neutral and be comfortable with who they are. And, um, because I think we're all trying to 
feel better mm. and look to feel better in the future. I know I've said on this show a few times, I'm, I'm always thinking about longevity and maintaining strength and, uh, you know, being able to play with the kids in 10 years' time, you know, when I'll be almost 60. It's that kind of mindset. So how do we approach it? What kind of language do we use? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. I, I think the, the first point is is not to overstate the the effect of any one thing. So the vast majority of single mutations in your genes mean absolutely nothing. Like the they are overinterpreted. They're essentially nonsense. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, as a one by one, you know, whack a you know game of whack a mole, which is essentially what's done. That, that, that there's just no evidence to support that. So the first thing that we can do is not overanalyze or overinterpret sparse or incomplete data on en- on any one given thing. Mm. Um, and then the next thing that I think is important is just worth, you know, bear, you know, remembering that as a member of the human species, you have enormous capacity for both well-being and performance. And the things that are always important are always going to continue to be important. They're the things that we talked about to do with sleep and stress and, and movement and, and nutrition. And once those things, you know, so the, and there's always going to be some room for improvement. Um, but but I think, and, and and equally, there isn't that much space for positive thinking, because that doesn't really do much either. Um, you know, po- you know, positive psychology has a, a number of potential downsides, including reducing our ability to achieve a certain goal, because we kind of trick ourselves into feeling like we already achieved it, and then we never go out and get it. So so there's definitely, <laughs> there's, right, there's downsides to that as well. And we can't, ever really change our thoughts um interestingly you know you have no real control over that but you do have control over whether you sort of latch on to negative thoughts and ruminate on them um and that can be sort of you know you know again you can think about breathing techniques going outside walking in nature just sort of changing our environment and then then affects whether we sort of ruminate and and and, and get in some of these negative thought processes so there's no like um, a sort of single right answer. Um, I think it, it's not a, just everything should be positive thinking and, and telling themselves they're wonderful because again, you know, there's there's no real evidence to support that either. But and I it's think it's not sustainable. No, it's exactly. Not sustainable. Yeah. It's exhausting trying to be positive and happy. <laughs> I, I, I'm not an advocate for trying to be happy all the time nor positive. I'm a real advocate for just turning down the noise yeah. and try and find neutral. Then, and, so, and then, if, so, and then yeah. happiness can come in every now and then. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> of course. And and you know, you're gonna be sad, you're gonna be angry, you, you know, you're gonna be happy. This is this is you know, fighting those things probably, you know, it comes with its own downsides. But essentially realism and acceptance are the most important things. And I the the main thing that I would advocate for is just not you know, introducing this language of negativity around something that there isn't really that much evidence to support. Uh, and you know, mm. and people do it in a well-meaning manner, right? They make these sleep trackers because maybe they want you to sleep better and they, you know, they run these genetic tests because they want to help people, you know, solve complex health problems. And so so I'm I'm, I'm not saying that anybody is coming from this with, you know, with like a you know, nefarious goal, you know, that there's it's well-meaning, but I think it introduces uh you know, more problems than, than than it solves, particularly around the language usage. So so I, I would just always bring it back to those kinds of basics. Um you know, and, and and then build from there. It's interesting, isn't it? Even if you just look again from the sporting side and, and you know, the endurance of sport, you know, we, we've seen athletes in the past that, that race to heart rate, no matter what, they're mm. data, data, data people. And 
I've always been a big advocate of utilizing some of that data to, to, to know where you are, but but to race and, and, and you're a different person on race day and, and you, you have a taper and you're rested and you're different than all your training days. And to, to race to the heart rates that you have prescribed yourself in training, you could miss out on an, an incredible performance. It can almost be a limiter as much as it can be something that makes you feel like you'll never get there. It's mm. kind of a, I, I feel like sometimes we're missing just living do you know what I mean? It's like everything is so data driven now, and we got to fit. You know, I need my eight hours sleep. It must be eight hours, and da la la. And I said, "Well, hang on, maybe you're someone that works better on six to seven hours sleep and a nap later in the day, or whatever." I mean, and and that that is always curious to to me is to understanding that we're all very different. And again, it comes back to this ancestral help health. And I, and I had a Dr. Ara Sapaya on, um, and fascinating story in his own right, and, and a really wonderful listen. But we were discussing briefly nutrition, and, and he said, "Look, Greg, I'm from India and Malaysia," and he said, "You know, my ancestors have all been always on the equator, very hot environment, and we're we're kind of used to." Um, more carbohydrates in this kind of environment. But mm-hmm. if you come from the Scandinavian, and I think you've got, what do you have? A, what's your bloodline? You've got yeah, I mean, your dad's side. Yeah, mate, yeah, so like a bit of Anglo-Saxon, but largely, yeah, Northern European, certainly, Scandinavian. And, and so maybe perhaps you're used to eating more fats. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's something to what he was saying there? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think if there's, this will probably become less relevant over time as as we uh, become more more mixed in our in terms of our ancestries. But but I think the the best that we can do currently, if we're trying to, you know, well, there's 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 obviously there's a data driven approach in terms of optimizing nutrition, and you can measure particularly glucose responses are a nice way to kind of track that how you respond to certain foods, and so you can do that if that's something that you're interested in. Mm. But but equally. I think, you know, from a first principles approach, the best way to, you know, quote unquote, personalize nutrition is to think about, you know, where did your ancestors come from? What kind of diet were they eating? You know, and that's probably going to be, you know, going to be clo- closer to 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 something that there's, there's better for you personally. Um, and 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 there's, yeah, you, you, there's very nice data looking at percent of carbohydrate in the diet based on latitude and so yeah if you if you're uh, yeah if your nearest ancestors live near the equator absolutely you, I, I think you are more likely to to do well on a higher carbohydrate diet and if you're you know i've, I've i guess I've, I've made this joke a couple of times previously whereas you know if you're in northern norway or iceland where my ancestors come from if you want to try and find a starchy carbohydrate um you're you're going to be out of luck um, you guys can just go to eat seal fat or whatever. What is it you yeah. up there? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. You uh, lots of fishing, you yeah, know, yeah. maybe some deer and elk. Um, but you know, it's, it's largely going to be animal based, and you know, your carbs are, are going to come from a few like slightly ropey looking berries in the summer. Um, that, that's it. Um, so, so, so th- I think that plays a big role. And there's also similarly. Um, some, some data that supports the same thing, but both from a type of fat standpoint. So people who, um, again, from that uh, central or, or, you know, close to the equator, they actually started uh, sort of like when, when, they, when they started to, to farm and, you know, relied more on plants versus animal foods, you know, those things happened at slightly different times. So if, if you're more, if you're in an area where you're more likely to get more, more plant-based foods, so then that's going to be more carbohydrates in your diet, 
then you do better with things like plant-based omega-3s, um, alpha-linolenic acid, which is a precursor for the longer chain omega-3s, DHA and EPA. Um, and so you may do better with those forms because that's what you're adapted to. Whereas if you're somebody like me and you were eating a lot of marine life, seafood, right, then I do less well. I'm less likely to be able to convert those plant-based omega-3s into the longer chain ones. And I'm going to need to get those directly from the diet. Um, mm. And again, so it's, it's not perfect, but those patterns do certainly seem to, to appear. And if you're going to start with trying to, you know, personalize a diet a little bit, then thinking about, you know, a thousand years ago, what were my ancestors likely to be eating? You know, that, that, that's certainly going to be a good place to start. A quick mini break. I really want to encourage you to do something special for yourself and sign up to Athletic Greens and get a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Laura and I were discussing over breakfast this morning um, the environment that you're in and the foods and things like we're discussing that grow in that environment. But then I threw in the fact, look, we're down in South Florida here and, of course, you know, coconuts and seafood or whatever it is. But I'm like, well, hang on. It probably doesn't work for us in the same way as it did 100 years ago because we live in air conditioning. So what we need from a coconut you know, in terms of the the minerals or whatever, uh, and the the drinking and everything else, is because we were meant to be dehydrated, sweating, and in in a real heap. <laughs> but we're never in that state, so we actually don't need to eat. You know, so we are different to what we're not really in the environments that we think we are because we're all living so comfortably these days. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it's kind of like we can't just live off off that side of thing. Now, you also mentioned like I, I just want to touch a bit more on. I kind of got sidetracked there. We went to nutrition, and but um you know, the, the DNA and the genetics. And I, and I have spoken a little bit about it and, and I'm excited about the future of it, but I have also said, look, I, I think they're only really scratching the surface on all of this. And, um, there's still a long, long, long way to go. And, mm-hmm. and it was when I had Dr. Mansur Mohammed come on and he read my, you know, my DNA, my genetics on, on the episode. And, and I, I was a little bit like, Oh, I'm putting myself out there. It's a little, <laughs> a little bit vulnerable, but, but he came in and he said, Greg, you know, we, we, I, I've tested, um, uh, many of the best endurance Red Bull athletes and, and yourself. And he said, what you all have in common, he said, you know, you all produce your, your natural levels of glutathione. We're all very, very good. He said, okay, you're all in the top 1% of that. But he said, I had a list of things that I thought you all would have, you know, just as an interest. In, um, and he said, none of you are good at methylation, you know. And he said he couldn't believe that some of the world's best endurance athletes were really poor at that and he, he still he couldn't figure out why and so sort of going on what you were saying in terms of if i walked away and only got that information back i'd be like oh i'm never going to recover from an injury i don't deal with inflammatory response well but he's still trying to go well maybe having high levels of glutathione or whatever it is antioxidant is, is helping with that in some other way and and so my point with all of that is going we get little snippets tiny little snippets of our dna and if we lean too heavily on one of them i think that can affect us psychologically for others you know what i mean mm-hmm. did you th- still think there's something like he mentioned with my vitamin d that you know i don't receive it i don't transport and i don't uh receive it into the cells very well and vitamin d has obviously been a big topic of conversation in this last 12 months you know since Rhonda patrick kind of came out and said we all got to be taking vitamin d to reduce the effects of covid mm-hmm. 
And he said, I don't, so I've kind of been supplementing a bit more with vitamin D. What do you think in terms of coming from a DNA study saying he doesn't, I don't do very well with vitamin D. Do you think that's right? So, so immediately, I'd like to re-highlight the point that I made about language. Yeah, yeah. You don't methylate, (laughs) you don't methylate well. You don't use vitamin D well, right? Yeah. This is it. There's this negative language that. But if I can used, replace it, though, it's not negative. If I can get myself to neutral through supplements, yeah, is it just well. So there's, there's, but there's a point before that, right? So when when you look, so when you actually look at an individual SNP or group of SNPs that that are associated with a certain outcome, and that could be your glutathione level, it could be your vitamin D level, it could be your vitamin D signaling, which is probably what's more important. It could be, um, you know, you know, when you're talking about you don't methylate well, it doesn't mean anything, like. We're which 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 methyl groups and where um, and and how are you measuring them and and when you look at a certain SNP and then you look at the the phenotype the outcome which is what you care about what what people talk about is the average effect on average you have fifty percent less glutathione or fifty percent methyl groups on whatever but the variability is huge. It's huge. And so when you look at the actual data that explores this, you know, most individual SNPs, even if like the average effect is a 50% difference, only about 10% of people will have a phenotype which is not seen in those with the different genotype or the better genotype. So the variability is so massive that you could have a SNP that's associated with better glutathione, but you could be in the bottom half of the normal distribution of which there would have to be a normal distribution because that's how these things work. And then actually your glutathione level is no different from somebody who has the bad SNP, right? And that just happens in normal variability. So unless you're directly measuring it, I don't think those those statements are particularly useful. So unless you are measuring your vitamin D level, which you should, and you're supplementing, which you probably should, and you're looking at, your, um, looking at a marker of uh, vitamin D uh, signaling, uh, the easiest you could probably get is parathyroid hormone, although there are others like FGF21. Unless you are physically measuring how you are responding to a certain thing, I think making those statements about your genetics is a complete waste of time. I, I, I don't think it's scientific. Um, I think it's telling you that your body is, isn't physiologically capable, which it should be. So, so when you're talking about people who don't methylate properly, um, so you might be talking about your MTHFR gene, 85% of people slightly more, have an MTHFR gene which doesn't methylate properly, as in it methylates less efficiently than the 100% of the 14% of people. And so that's most people. So going around telling most people they don't methylate properly, this is normal variability. It's associated with perfectly normal health and health outcomes. But to tell them that they have this negative like anchor in their physiology is just so unnecessary, and it's not true. So you... I get kind of worked up about this stuff. Um, That's good. I get worked up. Tell me how it is. I care care about your health and performance, Greg. And and yes, vitamin D is incredibly important. I think it's incredibly important for multiple things, including potentially risk of severe, you know, or you know, poor outcomes if you if you are exposed to COVID or multiple other things. So you should measure your vitamin D. If it's below forty, you should supplement. Um, And if you're in the, in the gray area or you're, you're not sure whether your signaling is good, right, because the absolute level doesn't tell you how well it's signaling, then measure parathyroid hormone. It should be in the bottom half 
of the of the normal range. And if it is, then your signaling is good, and you don't have to worry about your SNPs whatsoever. You, so so there's there's hard data that you can use to answer these questions. And I think the rest of the time we're just sort of like shooting in the dark and then telling people stuff about themselves that I don't think is necessarily true. But but what about when we talk about you know when we talk about measuring our level of vitamin D and and, and at the same time we say you know when we measure these things it's a real snapshot in a moment of time like I I could have been in measure my vitamin D after being inside for four days and it be no vitamin D from getting outside but and then I'm in the sun for the next five days and so it's kind of like these snapshots so do you get measured like all the time or is it having a really good understanding of when you do get measured knowing that you've been inside for four days that you should expect a low vitamin d like yeah it's, so, so vitamin d particularly doesn't doesn't fluctuate within days as much like that right it's a fat soluble hormone there's the okay. some but there's some buffer um in there um but it, but, but it, it is a good question and so the most important thing is that if it's something that's directly affecting your health and performance right now and you're doing something to change it then you're going then you should repeat it so if you are you know, you find yourself to be low in vitamin D, and you're probably going to need a high dose to replace that. Um, you know, if you're taking high doses of vitamin D, you should probably retest your vitamin D and make sure a that you've got into the range that you want, and and b you sort of like haven't overdone it. So, and vitamin D is obviously I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> and vitamin D is an important one because the fat soluble vitamins you have a little bit less. You know, you you're much more likely to overdose if you if you take massive doses for long periods of time compared to some of the, the water soluble vitamins. So, um. You know, I think if you're direct, you know, if you're directly intervening and wanting to see changes, then, you know, you you can you should measure and repeat. But then there are also so again, if we stick with vitamin D, there are some ways to to automate this process. So there's a uh, an app called DMinder. Uh, you can put in a measurement for your vitamin D. It knows where you, it measures where you are from a, a latitude uh, and longitude standpoint. So it knows, and and you put in some some uh, details about your complexion and and how you respond to sun exposure, and then it gives you an estimate. You know how much time do you need to spend out in the daylight in in the sunlight where you are to achieve a certain level of vitamin D. So you can do some, and you know there's there's a lot of data, particularly behind vitamin D, that that you can follow. So you know you don't necessarily have to be going and getting your blood tested every week. Um, there are some processes to sort of help you um, help you figure this out. Geez, there's a lot of things coming out there. You know, when I had Dr. Um, Dan Plews on the other week and, you know, heart rate variability wasn't even a thing we talked about when I was an athlete in the, the 90s and early noughties and, and obviously now it's become a big thing. He said, no, Greg, there's an app now. You can just test it, you know, with the light from the camera. I don't know oh, how yeah. accurate H- it is. HRV, HRV for training is probably the one that I think he, HRV I think he, for training. I think okay, and then you've got that, yeah. D-Minder, which is like, <laughs> uh, I'll put these all in the show notes for everyone because I, I think this is all fantastic. You know, all of these things now are at our at our fingertips and um, that's okay let me ask you this then is there a place for these genetic dna companies i mean off the top of my head is it 23andme and, and a number of others is there a place for them is or is it are they not there yet are you like i, I i'm encouraged that people are trying right they're, they're looking into it i think what we're saying is they're they're coming at from you know then when you get your report, you're not getting the full results in the sense of, like you said, the variabilities in the tests and, and exactly what it all means. We're not. Do, do you think there's a place for it all? Yeah. Uh, so I think that there will be. Um, there's certainly, I've seen some quite compelling data from um, a company that's uh, based in the, the UK. And I think they have some, some people in Italy um, 
called Alelica, which is building polygenic risk scores for things like cardiovascular disease. And but it, I mean, it's based on their own panel. Uh, you know, it's you can't do it with sort of like a simplistic twenty three and Me, but it, it's also it won't be particularly expensive once once it's available. And you can really stratify. It looks like you can really stratify people's risk of cardiovascular disease uh, based on their genetics. And and there's there's more and more of this stuff coming out. So if you particularly for cardiovascular disease, uh, but there may also be some you know could potentially be useful for things like uh, Alzheimer's disease, maybe some other things, maybe maybe some cancers. Um, and so these these things drive a relatively small proportion of your overall risk. Uh, to to be honest, like the 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 big driving factors are still these lifestyle factors that, that we talked about. Um, but you know, within a given uh, you know within a given group of people with a given sort of fixed lifestyle you know set, set of lifestyle factors, then your genetics will sort of stratify you in in terms of risk to a certain extent. Mm. So so I think once we have very large data sets based on, you know, probably it's going to end up being whole genome sequencing, um, you know, or, or, you know, rather than just like all these individual uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms. And once we have that data and we, and, and we also have large population outcome data, which should include some risk factors, lifestyle, you know, some blood testing, so some actual phenotype testing, like how does this person look? What are they exposed to? How do they look currently? Then I think we'll figure this out. It's, it's, it's a big data data science problem um and i think there is absolutely a place for knowing your own personal genetics but i think that the way that the the vast majority of current direct consumer companies do it is not grounded in, in the current science so mm. it's 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 definitely something that i'm so when i've seen people do it well and these things aren't commercially available yet i think there is a potential power there but but mainly because it will, it will hopefully drive people to improve the things that are going to be their biggest levers, which again are going to be nutrition, sleep, movement, you know, body composition, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, maybe some of their environmental exposures. So if, if we use it in order to help people pull the levers that we know uh, are important, then I think that's, that, that, that's great. Um, the, the potential downside of that is that so far, when we've looked at data from genetic testing and said, hey, here's a gene, it puts you at risk of X, you need to do Y, people don't do it. So, so, so for the vast, again, for the vast majority of people on a population level, just telling them that they're at uh, increased risk because of the genetics does not drive behavior change, which is the thing that you actually want, right? No. So for you, Greg, if you're you know, or, or Laura, if you're data driven and, and you're, and you're, and, and so that, that, that type A personality that comes with, you know, executives and athletes and, and those kind of groups, they will, you know, you'll tell them, Hey, you need to do this and they'll just do it. Mm. But the majority of people are not like that. And just giving them more information about themselves does not drive behavior change. So yes, this data is potentially useful. I think most current solutions aren't very good at all. Um, they will come eventually. But then the real problem is how you then use that to improve the health of the, the person in front of you. Um, and that's a very different scenario. And more information is not is not going to be the, the, the key, uh, key factor there. Well, I, I think you, you've touched on something there is like we keep getting more and more information, more and more data, and it's trying to just see through it all what's truly important mm. and what can we work on first and prioritizing what really matters. <laughs> and, and I think that's where someone like yourself, you know, I've used you as a sounding board for a few years now and it's been great to kind of go, well, what, what do I need to really prioritize? And it's nice to be able to have someone like you um, 
run that by. Uh, l- l- let's move on to to lifestyle factors, as you mentioned, and let's start with sleep and circadian rhythms. Mm-hmm. Um, firstly, how does circadian rhythm work? What is that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a that's a uh, a good a good question. So, um, <laughs> boom, straight yeah. into it. What are we doing? So, cir- so circadian comes from circadian, which means roughly a day in Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it's basically this cycle that most organisms are on, you know, on, on this planet. And it's because uh, there's the the predictable uh, twenty four hour cycle of the sun rising and the sun setting, and so being exposed to light. Uh, during the day and then darkness at night and probably at this point either directly or indirectly because of other genes and proteins that they interact with you know most of the processes in the body run on a circadian rhythm right they are set the biology is set in tune with this uh, daily rhythm and you can think about very obvious examples like melatonin which is the main hormone associated with sleep it's going to increase as it starts to get dark um, it's going to peak sort of early in the night, and then it's going to decrease um, until you wake up in the morning. And then at the same time as um, you know, melatonin is coming down, then cortisol is coming up, and cortisol peaks sort of early in the morning, um, and then comes down during the day. So they have kind of a reciprocal relationship. But then with that, you know, melatonin also influences insulin and how you handle um, different foods, and you know, d- different times of day, your liver has different. Uh, proteins and enzymes being made to sort of uh, deal differently with you know the food that you eat and Mm. you know uh, so most you know and and then it it continues you know up and down the brain and most of the organs that they they have what we call clocks so they are set uh to this time there's a a central clock which is uh, largely driven by the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the brain and there's the peripheral clocks and each tissue essentially has its own that's timed partly by the central clock but then also by uh, peripheral, um, you know, or, or things that come in and you know help set that. So the the liver clock is more likely to respond to the food that you eat because that's obviously the big kind of circadian thing that the liver is directly involved in, like the first processing of. Um, so so basically, every important part of your biology um, and you know multiple hormones, you know, testosterone and and everything we've talked about, they they have a, a daily rhythm. Um, and this is kind of in order to align us with this natural um, uh, natural clock um, or you know exposure from the sun and so so during the day we're in more of a kind of an active state actually physically doing things and then at night a lot of the repair processes start to happen um, and when we disrupt these clocks so we try to do the thing the things that we're not supposed to be doing at the times when we're not mm-hmm. supposed to be doing them so if you're eating late at night when melatonin is high that's associated with much higher blood sugar and metabolic dysregulation because melatonin in, inhibits insulin signaling um oh. so um and then and then equally you know the, there's some interesting data on uh, light exposure at night and uh, skin cancers you know or not being able to you know recover and repair at night when it's dark because you're still getting this signal that that you, that you should be should be awake so you never get a chance to repair so you know everything we've talked about essentially is you know something happens and then you have time to repair from it and this this happens on a, on a daily cycle as well um, and when things get mismatched we know we we think we know that shift workers or, or people who you know don't sleep um, as much or you know whatever so I mean they're potentially 
both connected and disconnected problems. So there's sleep restriction or sleep deprivation, which has its own set of problems, but it's going to be partially tied to you know doing things, being awake, you know, outside of normal circadian cycles. But people who do shift work or, or swing shifts, they have an increased risk of most of the chronic diseases that we've talked about. Certain cancers, yeah. obesity. It all comes back, obesity. doesn't it? it yeah. It's like this this not turning off the stress. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we need to find times to recover. And, it needs, and, it, and, and you know, for, for, for best outcomes, it needs to be time. You know, during the day, you should be exposed to mm. stress and stressors. And then at night, you shouldn't be and you should be asleep and it's dark. And then, the you know, all the, the sweepers come out and, and, and start clearing stuff up. And if you don't give yourself a chance to do that, and you know, right? It happens one day or two day, days in a row. It's no big deal. But this stuff happens chronically over years and decades. Then, then the the damage really starts to accumulate. So, I mean, you you mentioned a few things there. When we say what can disrupt circadian rhythm, mm. I mean, obviously, the obvious things one are you know, as you mentioned, shift work and those kinds of things. And I'd assume, obviously, jet lag. But can we do it through nutrition, like eating, eating, like you sort of. Can you eat if you eat too much protein in the morning or too much, depending on the individual? Is there a time and place for the amount of carbs or protein that your body prefers? Yeah, so it's it's kind of roughly thought that the body is more insulin sensitive in the morning and probably starting or sort of morning to lunchtime. And, and probably the lowest glucose responses to a given meal happen if you have um, that meal or those carbohydrates around lunchtime. Um, and, and probably you're yeah, starting maybe one or two hours after you wake up because when you wake up, um, cortisol and potentially melatonin are still elevated. So that can result in, 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 in bigger sort of fluxes of blood sugar. So if you're going to get you know, really technical about it, then like, you might start with a more protein-based meal in the morning and then have most of your carbohydrates around lunch. Um, and then, you know, sort of a, get a mix, but not a particularly large dinner so most people think that that you might do better if you shift more of your calories earlier in the day particularly if you have metabolic disease that being said the magnitude of the effect is very small so it may be better to do that but is it you know that much better that everybody should be wor- you know worrying about doing that and i don't think the data suggests that that it's, that, more, that, it's more information mate it's too much information now yeah yeah, so, true, yeah no, and so, so, so at this point right it, it's it's interesting to me because i have an interesting in circadian biology i have a, you know an interest in metabolic health do i think that you need to have a protein rich breakfast have all your carbs at lunch and then have a small dinner you know you know, not too close to bedtime. So I think not having a dinner too close to bedtime does help with sleep quality. So I, I do often recommend that. But I don't worry too much about macronutrient distribution during the day because I think there are much bigger levers to pull, uh, such as diet quality and total caloric intake and, and all that kind of stuff. So so yes, there is potentially a, a better placing for, for like calories and macronutrients through the day. But I think the magnitude of the effect is so small that there are probably going to be much other big, much other more important things that, that, you, that you should worry about. I, I've got something for you. Laura and I, again, we're talking about this over breakfast as we do. <laughs> um, and we were talking about, you know, how we all mix our foods up a lot, mm. you know, in society these days, you know, you should different types of meats every night, or I mean, if you're a meat eater, uh, different types of colored vegetables and, you know, having all these mixed foods. And yet when we look at ancestral health, I mean, you and I go out hunting and we kill a buffalo and we're pretty proud of ourselves and, and, and we skin it and we're nice and warm because we've got big buffalo fur. But now we go, okay, we've got all this meat. So we're just going to eat – surely we're just going to eat buffalo for the next 
week until it goes really nasty. Yeah. And then we probably won't eat buffalo again for quite a while because we have to, you know, go out and get it. I mean, if we look at our basic ancestral health, is that how we should be approaching a little bit more of our diet these days in terms of going maybe doing I don't know. I'm just brainstorming here, just cycling eat, eat, through something. Um, <laughs> so, so on that scale, uh, I'm really not sure. I mean, so, so I think that's that, that's true. I think that that is exactly what happens: is, is is you get what you can get, and then that's the thing that you eat, and that could be for a day or, or several days, depending on the the, the supply. Um, and you know, going out to to pick a few raw leaves to make yourself a nice salad to go with your buffalo like that just didn't happen like <laughs> it is you know it's, it's worth bearing in mind that like there's there's almost no um sort of hunter gatherer tribe that eats raw leaves right if they, if they saw you know a, a western salad they'd be like well like what is this why why would you even eat that um <laughs> And so I digress. Um, but no, no, I want to actually touch on that a little bit more. So, I've been saying right, salad is rabbit food for years, and Laura's been making me eat it. So we're going to no, so so go into that a bit more. Yeah, yeah okay. So, but but so, so I think like on a day to day basis, I, I really wouldn't worry about that. And there's no evidence. Like I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that you need to to worry about that. Like one day, so you're basically just going to eat steak for three days, and then it's going to be like, well, the the buffalo disappeared, so I'm going to have to scrounge around for a few nuts and berries for a couple of days before i get more steak um i mean you could do that but i don't i don't you probably don't need to um however i, I think it is interesting to think about well well so first of all you, you kind of touched on earlier that we so we, we don't really have seasons anymore right you're just inside i mean other than when you like go and get in your car and drive to work and back you know it's it's air conditioning during the summer and it's central heating in the winter and you don't really get this kind of and then it's also there's electric lighting, so you don't get much more darkness in the winter as we would in more northern latitudes, and and more sunshine and light exposure in the summer. That doesn't really happen anymore. But if that did happen, then you know what what would have happened. So so say you live in a you know a, a temperate more northern or southern climate that has full seasons. During the winter, you're probably going to be relying on more animal foods, less carbohydrates, certainly, you know, few starchy carbohydrates, no fruit. Um, and, you know, so you're probably going to spend some time, well, A, being hungrier and B, you know, more time being in ketosis, having more of your food coming from, from maybe protein and fats. And during that period of time, you'll probably lose weight over like the winter. And then in the summer, you would, you know, that, you know, sunlight uh, promotes the the ripening of fruits on the trees and all those kinds of things. And then we would probably eat as many of those things as we could possibly get our hands on. So we would get fatter over the summer just because there's more calories available. And we'll get as, you know, as much as we can get our grubby hands on. Um, and then you'll lose that excess weight over the winter, which is the exact opposite of what me, most people <laughs> do, right? You get fat in the winter and then you slim down for, 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 for beach season. So uh, I think there's potentially something to that. And, and that signal is probably going to be stronger in people who you know are from northern you know more northern uh, latitudes so maybe somebody like myself you know i should i be in ketosis during the winter and then eat a lot of berries in the summer which is probably what was available to my ancestors you know is that going to be better for me uh, equally i don't have these massive swings in daylight you know in in iceland it's dark all night in the winter and light literally all you know 24 hours a day in the middle of the summer so i don't still i don't have those same environmental inputs anymore so I think it's interesting, you know, there's a possibility that that's something, another sort of signal that our physiology is expecting that it isn't getting anymore. 
Whether that matters, I don't really know. But it's a great question. It's something I've thought about a lot, but I don't really know what the answer is. Yeah, that's just, you know what, with my wife, Laura, who, you know, that's just a typical morning breakfast conversation. <laughs> and I'm always a cynical guy throwing bombs in going, well, how about, you know, whatever, you know, and I'm always coming up with these, well, that doesn't make sense, but we, we do have a bit of fun with it. Let, let's carry on with a little bit more with the nutrition because um, for the endurance athletes that are listening, um, we've often discussed that you feel like perhaps we're not fueling enough Mm-hmm. Uh, um, tell me your thoughts a little bit on that. Yeah, so, so this I guess this stems from the largest single group of athletes that I've worked with, which which tended to be endurance athletes, and also tended to come from um, a low carb sphere. We'll put it that way. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and so when you're training, and 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 so lots of triathletes, runners, obstacle course racers, you know those kinds of groups. And when you're training 20 plus hours a week and you are eating particularly a low carbohydrate diet, um, Mm. it's basically impossible to eat enough food uh, or almost impossible to eat enough food. And you certainly have to overcome um, a lack of hunger signaling. And so we certainly see in some people, particularly high volume endurance athletes who eat a a low carb diet, they're just not hungry enough to eat all the food that they need to eat. And actually, if you add back back a bit of carbohydrate, they get some of their hunger back. Um, And so what I saw very frequently was just people who couldn't recover, were tired all the time, um, you know, brain fog or or whatever you want to call it, the multiple different symptoms, often lots of gut symptoms. And their hormones are all in the tank, you know, testosterone low, thyroid signaling turned down. And it's just because they're not eating enough food. Um, So so there's definitely a point where if if you're, you know, you're the the in the upper echelons of um, athletic performance, particularly endurance athletic performance, and, and you're training, you know, twenty plus hours a week. Um, you need to work really hard to eat enough food. Um, now, the, the downside of that, uh, I think, is that when you look again, if, if you look at some of the um, research on modern hunter gatherers, because you know we have data on, on those, and compare them to you know, westernized humans, it seems like the amount of energy expenditure that the human body is used to is somewhere between two to 3,000 calories a day. And that, so that mm-hmm. counts for intakes as well. So when you look at, um, so they've looked at the, the Hadza, um, hunter-gatherers, uh, uh, you know, it's a, sort of a, a, a very well-defined African hunter-gatherer group or groups. Um, they... They, they basically limit their, you know, even though they're walking all day, moving, hunting, foraging, they basically limit their caloric output at something like up to t- maybe 3,000, 3,200 calories a day, which is the same as westernized humans. And, and it's interesting because we used to think that, well, well, westernized humans don't move as much, therefore we don't burn as many calories, and that's why we get fat. And that doesn't seem to be the case. So... Um, Herman Ponce is, is, is you know, the person who's best known for this work, and he created. There's a paper called "The Additive Versus the Constrained Models of Energy Expenditure," and basically what it says is that the more movement you do, um, the the less movement, subconscious movement, you do the rest of the time. So if you spend all your day moving, then you will subconsciously conserve energy the rest of the time. Mm. Um, so the difference in terms of energy expenditure that you can create without sort of turning down your 
spontaneous movement, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. The rest of the time is probably around 200 calories a day. It's not that much uh, because there's this auto-regulated system that you know somewhere between two and three thousand calories, depending on you know body size and uh, sex and that kind of stuff. You know that's where your your that's what your body's used to in terms of output, but then also in terms of input. Mm. So. The reason why I'm talking about all of this is because if you're a 6,000 calorie a day athlete, that puts an incredible stress on the GI system um, and on the body in general because that's twice as many calories as maybe it's used to or you know can easily deal with over time. Mm. Um, and so I think there's a I think there's a potential trade-off here, and you know this could be you know so there's multiple reasons why GI symptoms are incredibly common in endurance athletes, I'm sure most of the people who are listening to this have experienced them at some point. Uh, because as you know, the length and intensity of exercise increases, the, the likelihood that you get GI symptoms increases. And then by the time you get into like Ironman or Ultramarathon, basically, you're guaranteed to get some kind of gastrointestinal symptom almost. Um, and so part of it, uh, I think is um, a is the the effects of exercise on the gut, but then it's also just like you have to you know to to survive that volume of training, you have to put so much fuel through the system, which creates a stress on the gut in its own right. And if you're mm-hmm. not absorbing it, which does happen if you, because of you know, blood um, uh, perfusion changes to the gut during exercise, then you have these these undigested foods that end up in the gut, and then that can change your gut microbiota that can cause bloating and diarrhea and all these other kinds of things. So so I think. It's just interesting to me that there's a potential trade-off between like what is the body uh, used to and capable of dealing with from a caloric I- intake perspective. You know, obviously you need enough to maintain performance, but there may be a trade-off in terms of like what's the what are the other any long-term ramifications of this, and the, 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 it's 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 a possibility because those levels and intensities of exercise are not quote-unquote ancestral they're not something that we would normally have been exposed to so it's a novel modern stressor and that i think that's uh, sort of explains some of the side effects that we end up seeing in some athletes that's fascinating all of that because it's it's kind of um it's very unnatural, isn't it? I mean, yeah. from what you're saying, I mean, if we're meant to be living at that two to three thousand calories per day, and and I'm sure there's a real efficiency quota there. Mm. I mean, I I know that you know when we were training full time, you know, I could do my twenty mile runs and back it up with a swim, and and my diet wasn't any different than basically what I'm eating now. Yeah, because I was just extremely efficient. Yeah. You know, and and that efficiency just came that I I wasn't eating much more than three thousand calories a day, mm-hmm. and I was training like you said that twenty twenty five hours a week. Now, if I'm somebody that's going from nothing to that, then yeah, that's going to be a lot a lot of stress on the body. But I think I you know for you know I did it for twenty thirty years, and the body got more and more efficient. That it kind of did go back to that number that you're talking about in terms of a caloric intake. But I was efficient at doing it, mm-hmm. I, and, that, and that's probably actually, one of the hallmarks of what is required you know so i think there are multiple things that essentially are physiologically required to Mm. to perform at the level that you did for the the period of time that you did and and probably some kind of efficiency there is one of is one of them as well as being somebody who can um you know respond to adapt to and recover from the types of training that 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 you had to to do to achieve those levels of performance and then most people just can't can just can't do that no, and it was funny, but I, I didn't spend a lot of time doing the longer stuff. I focused on the shorter stuff. But the, the, the hours of training in a week were very much the same. And and my good friend, Craig Alexander Crowey, uh, you know, three-time Ironman world champion, everything else. And and when I was kind of looking at doing some of the longer 
you know, even just the half Ironmans, I said, oh, well, what do I need for calories? You know, I just kept you go on long runs together. What do I need to do for this in the race? He goes, ah, Greg, just take a gel at like 12K in the run. You'll be fine. And I do a bit of salt tablets in my water bottle. <laughs> so I did that and boy, did I blew to pieces. I just, <laughs> my body needed more, right? Yeah. But he'd become so efficient. He'd been doing them his whole career. That for him, taking a gel at around three hours into a three hour 45 race, he was pretty much set. Yeah. He didn't need any calories. And so it was interesting trying to learn from some of these guys that had trained themselves to become so efficient. Maybe he was even genetically something there that the rest yeah. of us didn't have. It was kind of like, hang on, let's maybe let's not listen to these guys too much. I, I mean, so, so I, I don't mean to insult Groey because he's obviously <laughs> learned a lot along his way, but it was it was funny when he did tell me that because I totally got hammered. <laughs> yeah, sometimes the most uh, talented athletes aren't the best coaches because they're like, well, it's just easy. You just do this and then... No, uh, I, and I've got to be careful because I know <laughs> Craig does have his own coaching and I think he's learned a hell of a lot, actually, when I did have him on the show. And I know Dave Scott, also the same. They've all learned incredible amounts. So they are very smart, but it was funny. And maybe he was just doing it because we ended up did racing each other a few times. Maybe he's just... Oh, maybe he's trying to sabotage you. <laughs> so, so, so there's actually... There's a, there's a couple of things that, that come from that just, just as I'm, uh, I think about it. And so there's some interesting data on... So, so obviously, there's the fueling side, but then there's also the the um dehydration the the weight mm. loss side and there's some of the really some really interesting data that uh, tim noakes published i mean it's like 20 years ago now looking at ultra marathon uh, like um either triathlon so triathlon or ultra marathon like the comrades marathon in south africa mm. uh, data the the people who finished first finished fastest were the people who lost the most weight like they were 10 or even 20 percent dehydrated they've lost that much body weight by the end so like they just have this capacity to become hugely dehydrated and just they don't just stop for water they just sort of just keep going and there's like some physiological capacity to, to deal with that so there's a fueling side there's the efficiency side there's the um sort of like the the dehydration weight loss side and the, if you have like this capacity to deal with that that seems to predict performance particularly in, in some of those longer races but I, so i remember the the, I did an ultra marathon in the UK, the Atlantic Coast Challenge. So it was three marathons in three days along, sort of like the, the coast in Cornwall, so up and down cliffs and over wow. beaches and all that kind Beautiful. of stuff. Wow. Yeah. And I, uh, the, the, I eventually, I think I eventually came fourth, but the, the, the last day, there were, there was sort of like the top three or four of us were sort of ran together the first bit. And then in the end, like these were be much better marathon runners than me so had much faster road times than me. And they sort of like disappeared into the distance in the last third of the race, maybe. But I remember going through all the different, um, feed stations and it would often be on this like rocky outcrop in the middle of nowhere where somebody would rock up with, um, like a, a box full of penguins and like, uh, some, some, you know, some, uh, like bottles of water or something and What's so a penguin hang on oh, wait what? like a uh, oh um oh, it's like a chocolate a, a penguin uh they don't have penguins <laughs> oh. in australia or in the u.s so it's basically like no, two no, layers, you're gonna have to describe it's that. <laughs> two layers it's two layers of chocolate biscuit oh. with like a, a chocolate cream in the middle and then chocolate on the outside oh um, lovely it's a penguin yeah. but but so yeah. actually but, but my personal preference was a snickers bar but okay. so, so, so what i remember is that we'd get to these feed stations and they were maybe every uh five or six miles or so and so like the guys i was running with who again were much better road marathon runners than me but my rowing legs sort of helped me get up and down the the, mm. the cliff sides i think that's what kind of helped me keep up with them um like they would just they would just blow through the feed station like just no need for it whereas i would like 
get two Snickers bars and I'd like be <laughs> double fisting them as I climb the next hill, like one in each hand. Um, and so I think there's there's definitely that that um, uh, efficiency standpoint uh, certainly probably played a, 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 a big role there because I was yeah. not not yeah. efficient, but I could sort of blast my you know sort of all strength and brute strength and ignorance was pretty much my uh, my motto when I was an athlete uh, competitively. So yeah, that that kind of stood me at least partially in good stead. It is fascinating though, isn't it? When we talk about the efficiency side of it, because I always encourage athletes that are getting into the sport of triathlon and it's a very addictive sport or any endurance sport, you get, you get addictive and you want to try and do better than you last. But there tends to be these days with, you know, they'll, somebody will do a local little triathlon and then, then the next thing they've entered an Ironman, you know, six months away and I'm going to do an Ironman. And that rapid step up is really starts to become metabolically unhealthy. Mm. I think it's when you you like you said what what it does to the body and the systems within your body in the biology is just not used to that. Yeah. That it's that maybe it is something that we all need to stay, you know, just take a little bit more seriously. Look, if you want to do an Ironman, it's okay to have a 4 to 5 year kind of plan. Yeah. Build exactly. gradually to it, you know, and that's maybe what we should be trying to encourage people to do a little bit more. Um I don't know. It's it's a fascinating area, and I, I love the what you talked about with with the Africans and, and how they've studied how they've become just so efficient at that. You know, two to three thousand calories. Mm. That's now, now going to stick with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to finish with one last thing, and and that's uh, us as humans and the importance of being social with each other mm. and that effect on our metabolic health. Um, Overall, this has been a fascinating past year where we had, you know, COVID and lockdowns and people in isolation. Um, what are your thoughts on what we should be doing a little bit more for our health in terms of being the social connections? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really important question. And, you know, there have been some or well, multiple studies looking at what we would call social isolation um, and uh, health outcomes. And social isolation is one of the biggest individual risk factors or predictors of of all-cause mortality um, wow. and, and obviously becomes more important as you get older as well as becoming more prevalent as people get older mm. and so there's some like i remember one analysis that that said and, you know it, it's impossible to directly quantify these things so so like take it with a pinch of salt but they basically said that being socially isolated was as bad for your long like for your longevity as smoking 15 cigarettes a day um, like out. that was the magnitude of the effect and so like wow. who knows if that's actually true but the fact that it was even close for them to make that comparison i think is quite compelling um and so pretty much every disease that you care to mention has, a, has is you know the risk again all those things we talked about is the risk is increased with social isolation and there could be some reverse causality there that as you become sicker you become more socially isolated so you know that kind of they they don't you know one doesn't necessarily lead to the other they are mm. connected in both directions um but certainly very important uh, for both mental and physical health and uh, a friend of mine that I was talking to recently um Mark Schneider who he runs a program called trauma informed weightlifting uses weightlifting to sort of improve both physical and mental health after after trauma uh, we were talking about a little bit about this and he mentioned that he didn't think that uh, COVID had increased social isolation. It had just uncovered all the social isolation that currently exists uh, in the US and, and other countries. And I think to a certain extent, that's absolutely correct. Like we are increasingly uh, isolated as people, you know, we live in, you know, single homes, single flats, you know, as we get old, you know, the, the you know, 
maybe fewer people live in a, in a large family unit. They have fewer, you know, actual physical friends that they see. Um, you know, even before the the pandemic took hold. Mm. Um, and the the interest. So, so so again, I think that that's just kind of baked into our modern society. Um, and then again, is associated with those those downstream risks. And early on in the pandemic, you and I had this debate about whether, um, uh, you know, whether this isolation. And so it was called social distancing, but it didn't need to be social distancing. It was more like physical distancing, right? Mm-hmm. You didn't have to not communicate with others. Although if you I was did. Gonna, I was going to ask you just now, is it, when you talk about social connection, mm. is it okay to do it through FaceTime and that? Or, or is there meant to be a physical, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's, are we meant? to be in each other's presence a little bit more yeah so so both i think um and so 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 one way so at least early on in the pandemic there were some studies that suggested that that actually uh people hadn't become or didn't feel as isolated and didn't have as much of an effect on their mental health because of the pandemic than we thought they would and, and some of the reasons for that were that there was this kind of blitz mentality like we're all in this together which yeah. kind of gives us this sort of boost but then also people were you know actually more likely to reach out to, to friends and family be it via facetime or zoom or skype or, or whatever mm. Uh, mm. because that was being encouraged because that you know it was easier they were home all, you know home all the time um so so actually those those created a psychological buffer we actually increased um social connection to a certain point even though the way that we did it changed and that seemed to help at least in the beginning although i think longer term those benefits seem to have decreased and actually now we're starting to see a lot more sort of reports of the negative mental health effects of the pandemic and they are also tied to the economic effects and all those other things that you talked about mm-hmm. so so i mm-hmm. I, th- I think you can certainly get some benefit from remote connection but then there's also like a you know, a physical oxytocin neurotransmitter, feel-good chemical like release of like physically touching, be you know, being in the same place as others, you know, and physically interacting with them. So I think both are important, um, but that you can certainly achieve at least part of it and, and good chunks of it through through um, remote connection. I, I think the remote connection, as you put it, is. I don't know about everybody else, but I kind of felt, okay, I'm always been a planner and and I like to know where I'm going and we're going back to Australia, we're going to the US, we're going to visit family. There's all, and all of a sudden, you know, it was like, okay, you can't plan anymore. And you just have to be, everybody, like you said, we're all in this together, just stay put. And to some degree, it was like, okay, just be present every day with what I have and make an effort then to, you know, to be social via, you know, the FaceTime or Zoom or whatever. And, and get out in the world. But I can't do any more than that. So now I can't – there's no guilt associated with not seeing family or friends. Yeah. It's like I can only do what I can do, mm-hmm. so I'm not going to get worked up about it. Yeah. I can't do any more. And so you kind of get to that acceptance level pretty quickly. Um, I think at first it was like, oh, no, we can't travel, whatever. But then you kind of go, okay, once I get to acceptance, I actually feel quite comfortable. And it's like, okay, I'm going to get through today. And, you know, I've said numerous times on this show, you know, just being grateful for what I have, mm. suddenly you can change that mindset. And I do think there is this kind of like, okay, when are we all going to come out of this <laughs> now? You know, I wouldn't mind, you know, Australia opening their doors and letting us come home. But I also get it. And you start to get, okay, 
you know, this is getting old, but patience is a virtue, you know, hang in yeah. there. And um, so I get what you're saying. And, and like you said, we did, we did touch on a while ago, we were kind of debating you know, the, uh, how people are dealing with it. And I think it's, it's affected, you know, like you said, there's people are out of work or, or, or whatever. There's a lot of other things involved that, um, and I think we're going to see, you know, over this next 12 months, uh, we're still going to see a, a fair bit of that. And, uh, and a little bit of that's going to be just looking out for each other. A fair bit, yeah. you know, as a society coming out as they did out of sort of the wars and things mm. of the past. It's kind of going, okay, how do we serve each other and help each other? Um, and in doing so, by serving each other, I think we 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 help our own health. You know? Yeah, the, uh, yeah. and the, the, and there's also some nice data on that. You know, where are you getting your are you getting your pleasures from hedonic? self-centric pleasures versus eudaimonic like helping others something you know contributing something bigger than yourself that mm. like has an effect on your immune system uh, and on your health um and, and it's, it's again because uh the way that you are placed within society does directly affect your physiology and that's that's where you get some of the social isolation actually having direct physical effects it changes your immune system um mm. and so, so yeah, I think that's a big part of it, and this is one of the potential downsides, my personal opinion, of the the sort of general ethos in the U.S., which is very individualistic. Like we're very internally and self focused um, as a society, uh, but there is a lot of benefit to be had from you know going outwards and helping others and thinking about others above your own personal freedoms or preferences because like sometimes you know you, you require the, the the group you know the what what benefits the group also you know then feeds back and, and benefits you eventually um so, so i think it's worth bearing those things in mind um mm. and then actually sort of going back to what you mentioned earlier and I, I think it's very relevant to everything we've talked about today is that you know accepting that you have done what you can do and then not worrying about any more that that applies to pretty much everything it applies to sleep and nutrition and movement uh, and you know i'm a big fan of saying that we can we should control the things that we can control and then the things that we can't control if we're able to worry about those less or not worry about them then we've kind of found what's what's potentially optimal for us um you know because there's always mm-hmm. going to be things that you can improve but there's going to be a point where you can't do anymore um and then creating worry about that is only going to result in negative health outcomes because you can't fix it, but it, you're, you're creating stress. Um, so, so I, I think that attitude can, can certainly be applied to, to most of the areas that we've talked about today. Right. There's nothing I don't enjoy about these conversations. <laughs> I, uh, you, your, your knowledge and just the way you, you talk and, and I just, mate, I think we're going to finish up there, but I just, I, I really enjoy these conversations. I hope you're okay with coming back oh, yeah, on there because I feel like every time you we get to chat, we, we kind of strip another big, bit off the, the onion and we, and, and we get a little deeper and, and you know, your knowledge, I, I know you, you hold back on me a, a little bit because you don't get too scientific on me, which I really appreciate. <laughs> so it's, but but it is it is just fascinating, um, you know. And, and I think as we come out of 2020 and into 2021 now, and it, 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 there's just we're going to be hitting different. There's going to be different things in society that are going to be hitting us, and I mm. think we can always discuss those as well. But yeah. always love these conversations. So thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me again. It's been a been a huge pleasure. I look forward to the next time. Yeah, absolutely, mate. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. That was Dr. Tommy Wood, and this is The Greg Bennett Show. Now, you can find the show notes, timestamps, coupon links, and everything else at bennettendurance.com forward slash 
media. All right, stay on the line, mate. Thanks, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.